You're listening to Around Comics, episode topics in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman, and I'm joined by the co-host of the show, Mr. Brian Salazar. I am the dark knight of podcasting. <laughs> I've proclaimed myself. That's quite a, quite, that's quite a statement. <laughs> well, that's, I have it's, returned. It's, it's a good thing that you're the uh, dark knight of podcasting, because this episode is our spotlight on the career of one Mr. Frank Miller. Frank did you want me to? I have nothing to say there. I don't know. Yes, it is. You'll have plenty to say about oh. Frank Miller because I know what a huge fan you are. That's <clears throat> uh, he is one of the true legends in comics, and all you have to do is look at his uh, library of work to uh, to see that. And if your home library is lacking some of the major works of Frank Miller, Not me. now is a great time to let you know that this episode of Around Comics is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades.com is your source for all things Frank Miller. Check out Frank Miller's landmark run on Daredevil in the Daredevil Omnibus. They also carry Batman The Dark Knight Returns, The Dark Knight Strikes Again, Ronin, Sin City, and many others. InStockTrades.com is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more. All at great discounted prices. And remember that all orders over $50 ship for free. Remember that Around Comics is recorded every Friday at 7 o'clock at Dark Tower Comics and Collectibles. Remember. Located at 4835 Northwestern Avenue in Chicago. If you're in the area, please drop by. We would love to meet you. Open your mind. <laughs> would also like to uh, mention Tom is not here this week. He'll be Tom. back. He'll be back again on where, Monday. Where is Tom? You know, any idea? He was pretty vague about it. Yeah, he was mysterious. Tom's not here. Scotty's not here. Scotty's in. Well, we know where Scotty's at. He's in uh, Charlotte. I think North, Tom, North Carolina. Tom is away fighting crime. <laughs> you, you know, whenever I'm gone, it's like some lame. You know, thing with Tom, it's like he's on, you know, on... You're at, like, your daughter's dance yeah. recital. Yeah, and, and Tom's fighting crime or uh, on... On assignment. On assignment, <laughs> yeah. Yes, Tom is on assignment finding our next creator spotlight. <laughs> there you go. Well, I tell you what, let's, uh, let's move on. It is time for Around Comics Creator Spotlight on Frank Miller. Discussing the incredible career of Frank Miller. We'll cover all of his major works and talk about their place in comics history. 
Along the way, we're going to hear from some of Frank Miller's contemporaries, creators he's inspired, and fans of his work. Born in 1957 in Maryland and raised in Vermont, Frank Miller was a comic fan and from an early age aspired to be a comic artist. His first published work was in The Twilight Zone for Gold Key Comics in 1978. It was at Marvel that Miller would settle in as a regular fill-in and cover artist, including drawing Spectacular Spider-Man number 27 and 28. Here, John Byrne recalls young Frank Miller at Marvel. Frank was the, the young Turk who reminded me that I wasn't a young Turk anymore <laughs> when he came along. It was, uh, I was kind of looking over my shoulder and saying, what, what's that cloud of dust coming up so fast behind me? Because you know? um, he just really did uh, explode on the scene. And uh, it was kind of interesting because he and I had oddly parallel uh, moments in our careers where we both kind of got to a point where we weren't having as much fun working with particular writers as we had and had decided we could probably write our own stuff. And, and uh, you know, he and I actually talked about that because I'd gone down the path a little bit before he had, and I was very much encouraging him to strike out on his own. And I, I remember I said to him at one point that uh, if he was going to knock me out of the top box, I was damn well going to help him do it. And, 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 you know, that's really an interesting thing to hear uh, someone like John Byrne with, with obviously the amount of respect he has for Frank, uh, a guy that came up, uh, you know, behind him, um, but who, you know, for whatever you will say about John Byrne, I mean, I, you know, even, you know, he can't deny the, you know, he couldn't deny the talent. And, oh, sure. And, 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 you know, and you're going to hear that repeatedly throughout <clears throat> this episode, the uh, the amount of respect that John Byrne has for Frank Miller as a creator. And I think that's a very mutual respect from, yeah, from every account that I've heard. I've been reading over the last uh, week or so trying to prepare for this show and, and everything. I was reading the Eisner-Miller uh, book that's come out. It's a interview basically the entire book is an interview conducted by charles brownstein um and it's much more of a conversation than like a straight interview you, you don't ever see the questions being posed it's just them talking they, they were good friends and and in it he mentions john Byrne a few times and and you can tell just in in the 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 small glimpses in there that he obviously had respect for john so when that era they were they were two of a very small group of what you would call superstar creators in comics. Sure. Well, and John was really the first. I mean, superstar. I mean, maybe Neil Adams before him, but I don't know that Adams had the notoriety outside of the industry. I think the industry had grown to a point that it was able to to actually have, you know, the quote-unquote superstars. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Frank Miller was a, a, uh, a comet. That that kind of you know streaked into that into that environment, and and a lot of that started from his first major work at, at Marvel, which uh, you know in May of of 1979, Miller began work on a series that would define his early career and redefine crime stories in the superhero genre. At first, taking over penciling duties for the legendary Gene Colan, and then writing duties as well, Miller made Daredevil a street-level crime fighter in a darker and more complicated world. It was Miller's transformation of the rogues gallery that made one of the biggest impacts on a slumping series. 
from the acrobatic sharpshooter bullseye to the once laughable kingpin, Miller created a dense and psychologically frightening cast of villains to duel against Marvel's blind lawyer and protector of Hell's Kitchen. And there, you know, he he had started. I um, I've always been a Daredevil fan since I've I've been reading comics. It's it's one of the few series that I've always stuck with, and uh, really it was you know Miller was my introduction to to Daredevil um, when those books were coming out. And I recently went back, and when the Omnibus came out, and I started reading that stuff over again. And you know, when he first started, he was he was uh, just the artist on it. Um, with uh, um, uh, Roger McKenzie uh, was scripting, and then soon afterwards uh, he took over the scripting duties also. And you can just tell, I would say immediately, the difference in tone uh, that he had planned for for Daredevil. It was something you hadn't really seen in Marvel comics, specifically uh, with with you know Daredevil at all. And before that, Daredevil was very much like any other superhero book. He would fight all sorts of wacky villains and and costume you know. Uh, crimes, that kind of thing. But as soon as Miller took over, it was really what it seemed like to me is he limited the universe that Daredevil uh, lived in. Even though he was in the Marvel Universe, he didn't have much interaction with a lot of the other characters. Uh, it was a very small cast throughout that entire initial run on Daredevil of you know the Kingpin and Gladiator and Bullseye and Elektra and The Hand. But that was pretty much it. I mean, there were a couple of issues where you saw some some different characters, but not a whole lot, and it was a completely different vibe. He, he almost took him out of the regular Marvel Universe and created this small little universe uh, among, uh, among himself in Hell's Kitchen, and it was very much Matt Murdock's world for just about the entire run that, that Frank did, and that obviously just built and built. And, well, I, I think right off the bat, Miller started a, a trend that would follow him throughout his career, and it seems like as soon as he started writing that series, Daredevil as a comic grew up. It got more mature. It, mm. it became more of an adult title, and then it seemed like the rest of the comics industry had to quickly catch up to what Miller was doing. And I think this is something that will, as we go through his career, we'll continue to see over and over again that that Miller would would kind of punch through these walls, and then the rest of the comics industry would kind of scramble Try and catch, catch up. Right now, we're going to hear uh, once again from John Byrne on what it was like to have a very young Frank Miller working on Daredevil. Well, that was one of the most amazing things about about Frank. I remember. But when he started writing Daredevil, there didn't seem to be any learning curve at all. It was like, bang, you know, he hit the ground running. And I just kind of stood back there going, you, know, you son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> I had to work at this, and you come in here, and there you are suddenly a genius right out of the bag. That's not fair. Um, it was just amazingly impressive to see him. And he was just a kid, you know. He was like 23. Uh, and, and it was just phenomenal, this little... Little Frank Miller from Vermont or whatever it is, suddenly, you know, a shooter used to say he grew up, his best friends were, were trees, and suddenly he's, he's, he's writing all this gritty urban stuff, and it was just so phenomenal to see it happen, so impressive. Although I do remember that when he first moved to New York, um, he got himself a camera and went around crawling around on rooftops taking pictures in neighborhoods that nobody in their right mind would have gone anywhere near but nobody bothered to tell him that nobody in their right mind would have gone anywhere near. 
So he went out and sort of immersed himself in the in the New York experience. I think what's really uh, really interesting about that last statement is when when you're dealing with, with genius creators, and I don't think that there's much debate that that Miller is a genius in in the medium that because you're so brilliant that they just kind of roll out of bed and and great creations just kind of like you know fall out of their head and you kind of discount the the amount of work that goes into it and and I think that that truly great creations happen when you have uh, a brilliant creator that also mixes uh, an incredible work ethic and I think that that Miller is one of those really talented gifted creators that that always worked for you know, for the craft, and, and you saw that you know crawling around on rooftops, taking pictures of the the Manhattan uh, rooftops, and, and, and yeah, and you, and you know we, we we shouldn't discount his his work, you know, in trying to grow and and trying to improve his craft because he did work while he started out with Daredevil very young. I mean, he was around the industry before that and worked very hard at improving. I, I know that uh, you know he when he initially came to New York. He was, you know, shopping around uh, sort of a precursor to Sin City, and nobody wanted it. Nobody had any interest in it at that time. And then it's too early. Well, yeah, and, and you know, he, he worked with, you know, a lot of amazing artists and, and really studied and, and tried to do it, you know, from all accounts, learn as much as he possibly could. He just was naturally gifted as being creator, uh, creative and, and able to come up with stuff. that. Sure. And, and I think also what you're looking at here is it's maybe not the, the first wave uh, of this type of creator. I think that really kind of happened more in the early 70s. But, but Frank Miller was uh, a comic fan from a very early age, and he grew up knowing that he wanted to work in comics. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of that generation, kind of what I call almost the second generation of creators, where that first generation, you know, they did comics work almost because they had to sure and, and now you had a generation of really truly talented creative people that wanted to work in the industry and they uh, well, I don't even know at, the t- at that, that time there were that many that I mean in the 40s and 50s there were almost no one wanted to be a comic artist I mean it was you know they were doing that because they couldn't get illustration work or they the couldn't get enough to, to pay the bills and you had a you know maybe a couple of guys you had Will Eisner who was one guy that knew you know right away that he he wanted to do this for the rest of his life and frank you know from all accounts it seems was the same way that's what he wanted he he never thought of it as a road to something else while it's led him to other places comics was what it was always about from the very beginning so i don't know how many other guys even at the time he was breaking in didn't have you know sort of the built in um passion well, no, the, the, I, I think a lot of creators at the time, and he talks about this again in the, in the in the book that I've been reading, about this sort of built-in um, insecurity about being a comic book artist. That because for so long comics have been regarded as uh, um, a bastard art form, that so many creators, so many artists, so many writers in the industry for so long 
always felt insecure about the fact that they worked in that industry. Wasn't a resume builder. Exactly. And and uh, I think we're getting beyond that now, but, but even when he was coming, I don't know that he had that many people that were like, this is what I want to do. This is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. So, sure. well, I definitely want to make a note that Frank Miller's first issue on Daredevil was number 158, and uh, then with the exception of issue 162, which was not drawn or written by him, he uh, worked on the uh, on the series all the way to issue 191, mm-hmm. which that is really the uh, the meat of of Miller's work on Daredevil until he would you know, come, come back, back and work on it again a decade we'll, later. Yeah, which we'll talk about later. And that and that ball that chunk of work to me defined that character oh, and and made him what it is. To me I will always think of those issues of what is what Daredevil is. There's very few issues that I can right off the top of my head say this number did this. I mean there's you know Amazing Fantasy 15, you know is you know You read that as a one, not not as a shot. <laughs> but there are those there are those few landmark issues that you know Detective 27, you know first appearances and that kind of stuff. Daredevil 181 is a landmark issue that really defined an era of comics with me and that's that that's the death of Electra and, and that is a masterpiece issue and I think mm-hmm. that was really a climax of of Miller's run on the first mega run that he did on Daredevil yeah well, I don't know you know I, I mean it, to me it's just the ent- sort of entire body of work of it it's just everything that he built up in the mythology of Daredevil and created that universe and created all those great supporting uh, characters and uh, and and really made the book more about Matt Murdock than necessarily about Daredevil and and sort of the paradox between the two and um, I mean he just to this day I still think you know there there would not be the Bendis Daredevil there oh. wouldn't be the the and, Brubaker and he Daredevil there wouldn't be yeah uh, Bendis has said repeatedly the hardest thing of writing his run on Daredevil was that every issue he wanted to write a love letter to, to, Frank. to, yeah. to, to Miller and, and and retread over the ground that he had gone on. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest thing, was to not do a rehash of, of Miller's Daredevil. Right. Because it's, it is so... You know, defining of that character. That it it it's made hard Kingpin to get away from one of the great villains in comics. Absolutely. He, he, was, he was, and I said in the introduction, he was a laughable character. He was really kind of known for just being fat and having funny henchmen mm-hmm. before before Miller got a hold of that character. Uh, we, we could dedicate an entire episode to Frank Miller's run on Daredevil, but as, uh, as amazing as his career has been, we need to move on. Near the completion of his first run on Daredevil, Miller would move his attention to another of Marvel's properties. But this time, it wasn't a secondary character in need of an overhaul. This was Marvel's mutant bad boy, Wolverine. Miller and X-Men writer Chris Claremont would team up for the four-issue Wolverine limited series, taking the adamantium-clawed mutant away from his current cast and placing him in Japan. This series took a closer examination of the character and infused a samurai influence we would see in future Miller works. And here is John Byrne talking about Frank Miller's work on Wolverine. At that particular period in his career, it seemed like Frank couldn't touch anything without it turning to gold. It was, it was just amazing to see him work. And he, and he stepped from Daredevil to Wolverine, who was a very different character, and just, you know, it was like putting on a different pair of shoes. It was no big deal. He just, boom, did it. And, and it was just, again, it was brilliant. It was so impressive to watch him work. 
And it, once again, I mean, it takes a character that um, was popular this time as opposed to a character that was not popular and did what many people still think is the defining, you know, story of Wolverine. You know, it created everything afterwards. You know what I mean? It, it just sort of uh, opened up the mythology of Wolverine and explored that character and made it possible for people to go in so many directions uh, since then. And and that's another reoccurring th- theme of, of Frank is that he takes these characters that may have been around for a long time already and is able to look at them in a completely different way and tell a story that you've never seen yet everybody you know that reads it all of a sudden is is just gravitates towards it and and you know it becomes this defining work of that character and we see it again later on you know well, one of the things that he is i think i think really really great at is is taking a character and just absolutely dismantling it you know if you think of it like a clock he just takes all the different pieces apart and lays them out on the floor and says okay these are the great pieces of this mechanism and that's what I'm going to focus on and I'm going to put this back together and I'm going to make it into something that, that that's boiled down and more pure and and really uh, really make it shine and, and he does well, it with I, Daredevil he does it with Wolverine he does I also it with Batman. think he has something that a lot of creators can't get past is that he doesn't have the fear of changing them, of playing with them, of using them in a way that hasn't been done before. So much in comics forever and to this day is always based on what's gone before. And so many writers and artists are so afraid of breaking away from that. And I think rightfully so to some degree because they're under the pressure of having to sell a monthly book and having their work liked by the editors and the companies that are publishing the work. And, and But, you know, Frank, even at this early age, was not afraid of it. He, you know, with Daredevil, I think he had a little more leeway. It was like, you know, who cared about Daredevil at that time? Dare, Daredevil really, was anyway. a bi-monthly book that had declining numbers. Mm-hmm. And here you've got a, a young kid with showing some talent, as, as I'm imagining it, as at the Marvel offices. And it's like, yeah, you know what, let's try him out on this book. Because you know what? We've got nothing to lose anyway. If so. he fails, yeah, it's no loss. But now you try him out, not try him out, you know, he's obviously shown that that he can handle the the craft mm-hmm. and the medium, and then you put him on arguably the most popular character in comics. Was he at ni- that time though? I don't know. I don't. Wolverine. I'm trying to think back. In 1982, was Wolverine that popular? Yes. Was yeah. he? Was yeah. Wolverine yeah. at that time? Was, okay. I'm, I'm uh, just trying to. Burn had been off of off of X Men, and it was really during Burn's run that Wolverine became a a, a a mega icon in comics, and and then Frank Miller comes along, and I think that we we always kind of look back at at the Wolverine miniseries as when a a really popular character became even more so. It's he went from he went from being a really good character to a great character, and I still think the high point. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, he, he just has that ability to uh, to take it to the next level and not be afraid of of sort of breaking it, you know. He, and and sometimes that's always not worked out for him the best a lot, you know. But most of the time it has, and and it's it's just courage to do that. And I think an art, you know, for an artist, for whether you're a writer or a pencil or whatever. I mean, you have to have that in order to make something great. I mean, you can get along, go a long ways in making good stuff and not ever maybe challenging yourself like that. 
or challenging the norm. I, ne- but I never got the feeling that Frank Miller was punching the clock on on this. Stuff. No, he he wanted to he wanted to push as far as he could and see how far you know it'll get him. Sure. Well, one thing um, that that Miller had shown that he could do at this point in his career was take existing characters and improve on them and make them better. But in July of 1983, we get to see really for the first time Miller creating his own world, uh, creating his own cast of characters, uh, both from an art and a writing side. And I think it's one of the the really underappreciated works in the Miller catalog. And I think it is because it's it, it's not with a, a set of iconic characters, and that is mm. the Ronin miniseries. Yeah, Ronin's a and and if you go back um, to Daredevil uh, and and uh, and um, Wolverine, I mean, it had that Japanese influence, and Ronin was a samurai story. Um, and Frank was really one of the first guys to. Uh, incorporate any type of, of Japanese influence, manga influence. He was way ahead of the curve on that kind of thing. Oh, by a, a, almost two, decades. two decades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And and you see it in you know in Daredevil, which ended up spawning you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and and a whole oh, host of and, and the Wolverine miniseries. I think was a huge. Well, Frank Miller. What without Frank Miller, there's no Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. It just it it inspired those guys to do that and and. Inspired. I mean, the the whole sort of samurai and ninja and and uh, Japanese, you know, warfare aspect of comics that we saw come after that. I mean, he was really one of the first guys to ever even dabble in that, and and uh, and you just saw it explode after that. And 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 Ronin was another, you know, sort of step in that direction, but with a, you know, like I said, not established characters. This is all brand new stuff. And I I was a big fan of Ronin when it first came out. I haven't reread it in a long time, so I don't know how it holds up. But at the time, when I what I remember from it was artistically, it was a um, a departure from what we were used to seeing. And if you look at it now, probably a lot closer to what he does now sure. than what he was doing then. I, I think it was the first major <clears throat> rein, reinvention of his style, and and I think that's part of the reason it wasn't a major critical. It was criti- It was a critical success, but it wasn't a major uh, commercial success at the time. And I think it's been one of those that has gained appreciation over the years. Uh, it, it was it was such a a interesting creative story it's really a futuristic story that feels very old at the same time and and for him to balance those two very foreign worlds of feudal japan and and sci-fi near future yeah which we've seen now you know how much in other mediums too in television or movies did they use the the term biotech in comics in 1983, I, I don't yeah, know. Probably I, not, not very much. Yeah, I mean, that, well, that whole aspect of that uh, story with the you know, cybernetic uh, implants and that kind of thing. I, I like, I remember reading it. Just you know, it was so creative and imaginative and cyborgs really with samurai swords and demons and which today is you know you would yeah. you see it all the time, but at the it's time it from. didn't exist. It didn't it hadn't really seen anything. At least you know. In mainstream comics, you hadn't really seen anything like that. So. And and now I think because of uh, a lot of the success of uh, Frank Miller inspired movies, we're, we're going to see uh, Ronin. Ronin I, I remember when uh, the uh, Robert De Niro Ronin and first you came out. I, I was yeah, I was like, oh my god, they're making that. You know, I I couldn't believe that they were going to make that into a movie, and then they didn't. And Ronin, the film, a good movie, it was a good movie, yeah, because it's but, uh, Ronin. yeah, and they're like, wow. 
<laughs> well, in uh, in January of 1986, Miller returned to the series that had made him one of comics' hottest talents. This time, teaming up with artist David Mazzucchelli, Daredevil Born Again introduced readers to Matt Murdock's Catholic background and furthered the complicated relationships between he and both Karen Page and the Kingpin. And here is Frank Miller fan and co-host of the Bullpen Bulletins podcast, David Price on Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. My favorite Miller stories are probably ones he's written with one particular creator, and that would be David Mazzucchelli. My favorite Marvel story Frank Miller has done is Daredevil Born Again, and my favorite DC story Miller has done so far is Batman Year One. These two stories, it's almost like Frank and, and David were just working off each other. The, David knew exactly what to draw based on what Frank was writing, and Frank seemed to be writing for David. It was just it was just amazing work. I can't picture any other creator telling this story, be it a writer or an artist. Fantastic work all around. The um, and if if it was uh, if it were true that uh, that the end of Born Again was uh, was to be the last Daredevil story. I can't picture a more fitting end seeing Matt and Karen walking on the page than it really it, it does have a sense of closure. I'm glad Frank got to write that story. And I'm glad David got to draw it. The um the only other thing I can really add is that even though he um He's he's you know known as as a writer or an artist or a director or a screenwriter or anything like that. He's uh, he's got many talents and and when I just look back at Frank Miller, whether he uh, whether it's working with Dave Gibbons or Jeff Darrow or John Romita Jr. or Todd McFarlane, he's just he, he's a creator. That's pretty much it. That that's what I can sum the man up as. One of the interesting uh, you know themes we can also kind of talk about with. Um with Frank Miller is the fact that he's been able to go and put out a series like Daredevil and define a character and then later come back and sort of do it all over again, which is what he did with Born Again. You know, Born Again, and, and the amazing thing about Born Again, is, you know, it was right in the series. It was, you know, the six issues right in the middle of, of the series, and... Um, and I remember reading those, and they just blew me away. It wow. was it was this tortured Matt Murdock, everything taken away taken away from him. You had this calculated uh, kingpin who just wanted to systematically destroy Matt Murdock. An ultimate betrayal. <clears throat> well, yeah, that was. I mean, that was the other <clears throat> part of it. It was all all you know started by by Karen Page, you know, uh, and um, and then ultimately, you know. It goes, you know, his redemption, uh, and and you know, after losing everything that he he could possibly lose, uh, the only thing he had left was his own uh, his own sort of soul, and 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 the the man that he is, as opposed to the character that he is, or the superhero that he is, or the lawyer that he is, or or the blind kid that he is. You know, um, it really had nothing to do with that. It it, it all had to do with who he was inside from. Uh, mostly from his, you know, his father, and and um, and it was just this unbelievable examination of that character, and and, and to do it twice, yeah. you know, to the same character is just on, you know, it's it, most creators probably never do it once, 
and he was able to do it in in a short amount of time. Now he's done it with two, you know, Daredevil twice, Wolverine once, you know, and he's not even close to being done. And that's kind of what Born Again was. It was it was taking everything that he had done uh, in in that phenomenal first run uh, of Daredevil and saying, you know what, yeah, that was great, but now it's time to 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 flip this character again and 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 redefine it for uh, another generation. And for a lot of people, Born Again was the first Daredevil that they read. We, mm-hmm. We've seen that repeatedly on the forum this week. Yeah, and and Mazzucchelli's stuff, uh, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it, there were. There's actually, if you read the trade, there's a, a, a an introduction by um, Ralph Macchio, who uh, basically says that if there were two guys that were born to work together, it was Mazzucchelli and uh, and Frank Miller because their their styles just complemented one another so well, and um, you know I, it's hard to argue that. I mean they. they they do seem to to just for whatever reason. I mean, there's been other you know Frank's own art with his writing mm-hmm. is one thing, and you know other people's art with his writing is another. But for whatever reason, Mazzucchelli and him just seem, you know, they it's like epic. You know what I mean? It's bigger than than just uh, the it's bigger than just a comic for whatever reason when they when they've collaborated and you see that in miller's in miller's career <coughs> with with different with different artists and we'll we'll touch on that with electra and 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 sinkevich and, and you'll see it you know again with uh you know his partnership with klaus jansen and basically any artist that that he's worked with he, he seems to seems to capture a voice with them you know jeff darrow with hardboiled has never you know, probably never been as good as as he was on that series with with the two of them working together, and and we'll talk about all of those works in just a little bit. But here's the the big one I think for for a lot of folks. And, and 1986 is regarded by many as a landmark year in the history of comics. DC was in the midst of crisis, and Alan Moore's Watchmen was deconstructing the superhero genre. Just when readers thought that they knew what to expect from Frank Miller, everything changed. In March of 1986, The Dark Knight returns through readers into a not-so-distant future where a retired Batman is forced to resume his role as Gotham's Dark Knight. DKR not only removed the campy image of the 1960s television Batman, it served as a template for a new generation of darker and more brooding stories of DC's Dark Detective. Dark Knight Returns is my all-time favorite comic ever. I've read it more than anything else. Um, I, I've probably read it 20 times or You've more. probably bought it in at least five different <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Uh, but I absolutely uh, love that book, and, and I don't even know if I can tell you why so much. Uh, um, the artwork, for one, is uh, maybe some of Frank's best because of Klaus Janssen, and, and, and even their best together, I think. Um, it, it, while it had this whole new look for these characters that you've seen before, um, it was still uh, part of the you know part of what you knew, just magnified. It, you know, it was like um, you knew this was Batman, but it was not the Batman that you grew up knowing, even if you read comics for years. And uh, it was like comics on steroids or something. It was you know this unbelievable electric 
combination of energy and weirdness and it came out and it changed everything and that's not a exaggeration it it's still the effects of dark knight returns is still being felt in the comic industry probably more for bad now than good but for whatever i mean that's not frank's fault it changed anything what people thought about a character that we thought we knew everything about and redefined it once again taking a character and redefining it completely changing what you think of it and changing what you thought about frank miller's work even even though he had already done this hugely successful work on daredevil the 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 wolverine stuff the daredevil born again ronin all of a sudden this was something that was completely different that was not you know what frank had done before and that's uh you know to me the mark of greatness is you know when you are able to redo you know reimagine yourself and recreate things and keep busting through and keep changing and not be afraid to change and and uh and Dark Knight did all those things. It it completely obliterated anything anyone thought about Dark you know, about Batman, and really set the modern Batman. I mean, that you know is still what we look at Batman. It, it's a before and after. There was Batman yeah. before, and there's Batman after. Uh, we talked about uh, the the working working relationship with uh, Miller and, and Mazzucchelli on Born Again. There's a, a, a name that was almost synonymous with Frank Miller from an art side, and that was uh, Klaus Janssen. We had a chance to talk with uh, inker, uh, artist, writer Andy Parks on Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen as an art team. Well, Klaus, I think, is perfect for him. I... I I don't want to compare Phil and I to uh, to those guys because we're not on their level, but we do think about making lines in the same way, so we kind of get along in an in artistic way. We're a good partnership, and I think Frank and Klaus were that way. I think they just saw things the same way. They they believed in the same kind of graphic uh, idea, you know, kind of graphics that really punch you in the face, even all the way up to Dark Knight, which I think created some tension because I think Frank wanted it to look not quite as conventional as what Klaus gave him, so I think there was some tension there. To me, uh, Klaus's work on that really pulls it together and kind of holds it down into the DC universe in a way that makes it more powerful. And Andy, of course, was talking uh, about Phil Hester there as his... uh, his, his Frank Miller? His Frank, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure that Phil would love to be referred to as Andy's Frank Miller. Well, I don't think there'd be anybody better to talk about a relationship between a penciler and an inker than, 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 uh, than Andy. I mean, him and Phil have worked so well together for so many years. Oh, they're, uh, um, yeah. They're, I mean, they're, they're one and the same almost. But as far as, as Klaus, I, I, um, I was amazed to find out years later after having loved... Uh, so much of of their work together, of how much of that sort of classic Frank Miller style that I loved was Klaus Jansen. Oh yeah. Um, there's some stuff. If you look in the Absolute uh, Dark Knight, there's a lot of backup material in it, and there's some stuff in there that is really amazing. In you see the penciled work of Frank's, and then you see the inked work, uh, and sometimes it's I mean it's night and day. I mean not not as far as quality, but in the style, and it's like, and I think a lot of times when people think of Frank Miller, myself included, for a long time, mm-hmm. they're they're actually thinking more about Klaus Johnson. But Klaus has done a lot of work himself, 
sure. in comics outside of just and ink I like and his pen- I no, do too no. and it has that same look but you can still see it's not they are that perfect relationship you know what I mean it's like one is always, one is weaker without the other you know it's like Frank's pencils just aren't the same without his inks and and Klaus's pencils or inks without going on top of Frank's pencils just they don't create the same magic well, I forget how many issues of Daredevil, but quite a bit there at the end of, of Frank's first big run on it. Frank was really just doing breakdowns, breakdowns and layouts, and, and Klaus was doing yeah, and, and Jansen was doing the majority of the of the art on it. It is amazing it how, how similar their stuff is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had to have had a lot of similar uh, influences, yep. and I mean, just in their line work and, and a lot of the things that they do, it's very similar, but. At the same time, it's different, and for whatever reason, it just works together so well. Then in February of 1987, Miller would combine the successful ingredients of two of his previous year's triumphs, returning to Batman, this time to the beginning of his days as the Dark Knight, Miller called on David Mazzucchelli to pencil Batman Year One. Come here, David Mazzucchelli, and pencil <laughs> this book for me. Come here, though. Contained in Batman issues 404 through 407, Year One became the definitive early history of Batman and was much the inspiration of 2006's Batman Begins feature film. And Coming off of uh, Dark Knight Returns, he redefines the character again within a year but this time at the at the beginning instead of the end of the character's uh career as a crime fighter yeah he goes and like i said before you know it's like he he comes back again and goes ah you know let's just play with this again and and create something iconic um batman's an interesting character he it's like the one few when he keeps coming back to though he hasn't really done any daredevil you know uh, since Born Again, and well, he did do the uh, um, the John Romita Jr. Uh, what's the, the oh name? the man with no fear. yeah the yeah. man with no fear, but Batman it's like that character he just keeps I think coming he, back to I and think Frank loves Batman's single minded obsession. I, I, I think there are similarities in Frank as a person that he I'm not going to go there. The, that seems like a crazy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I, I think that he, he uh, you would. You would almost have to see a lot of yourself in a character to keep coming back to him. And, and certainly Daredevil and, and Batman are, are the two characters that, that he has you know, revisited over and over again in his career. That he just seems to, uh, seems to understand those two characters maybe more than anyone else. Um, I was trying to find in, uh, in this uh, Miller-Eisner interview, there was an interesting... Um sort of statement he had I, I can't find the exact thing but I'll paraphrase uh, they were talking about Batman and um, and Frank was saying yeah you know there's people that uh, that care way more about Batman the character than any version of Batman that I've ever done you know and it, they, they care more about Batman than they do Frank Miller's Batman mm-hmm. and those people absolutely hate Frank Miller now because of what he's done with Batman, and it's like they look at it like this holy religious artifact that you can't ever break, you can't ever toy with. And I think Frank looks at it way more like a toy that he can have fun with, and that's why he can keep coming back to Batman because it's this toy that he can, you know. Now he has the, you know, uh, 
the 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 sort of um, clout to do whatever he wants. You know, it's like, hey, I'll, I want to draw Batman. Frank, if Frank Miller wants to work on Batman, then damn it, Frank Miller's going to work Absolutely. on Batman. Absolutely, yeah. And <laughs> and uh, and you know, it's just he doesn't take it maybe nearly as seriously as we do sometimes. And and he likes to have fun with the character, I think, and really see, you know, how crazy. And insane because the and and that's and we'll talk about it maybe more when we get into to Dark Knight Two, mm-hmm. which is something I want to talk about. But um, you know, Batman's an interesting character in the DCU because of that, because of his unique um, uniqueness, and 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 there's not really a lot of other characters that are much like him compared to the other superheroes that are in the DC universe. And I think that's what sort of attracts him maybe to that character a bit. Oh, absolutely. And you see that repeatedly through his Batman work. Um, Batman Year One, I, I think, is a is a quintessential work, not not just of Miller's, but of, of the Batman catalog. It is one of the, um, if you want to introduce someone to the character of Batman, what he is at his core, you know, how he became... Batman mm-hmm. and and everything that is great about that character, you give him Batman Year One. Yeah, it's it, it is the official origin story of Batman. Now it's it like, is canon. You, you want to know who Batman is? Here, yeah. start start here, and and then we'll we'll figure things out as we go. And a lot of people are bigger fans of that book, Batman, than than Dark Knight. Sure. I know a lot of people uh, think that it's a better work and. I you know I personally think it's awesome and it's an amazing piece. Um, it fits in continuity. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it, it's it's kind of been I don't want to say I mean, he's shoe- cha- changed some stuff, but yeah, I don't know, I don't want to say it's been shoehorned in, but you know you said it's well, the, he's it's retconned. Yeah. I mean, he he, but he did it in a way that you know it's like most of the time when you hear retcon, it's like oh, <laughs> but you know when he did it, it was like oh, you know I mean oh. it was like a, yeah it was it was. Uh, uh, it was good as it, opposed it, to he's one of the few uh wow that's better than i imagined right yeah you know, well that's you know there are some other folks out there that have some uh remembrances of frank miller and him coming up through through the ranks and uh, and redefining these characters and uh this is uh this is one that you may not have expected first of all apologies for the fidelity of this recording it's Gypsy Pride Day in Latveria, so the streets are filled with violins and scarves and much yelling. I'm forced to record this in June's storage room. When I think of Frank Miller, I think of the first time I met him, which was at a ninja and hot air balloon enthusiast fair in the early 80s. I was there with my newly constructed dirigible, the Grim and Gritty. He was peddling size and katanas out of a motorcycle sidecar. He struck me as a kindred spirit so I invited him to share in a feast of fresh boar in Latvarian spring water. I told him of my idea for a book about an aging but handsome ingenious dude that was forced back into action by a new threat to Doom's beloved Latveria. Frank Miller stole it and made Dark Knight Returns. I'm still waiting for acknowledgement, Frank. Doom wants his props. I also coined the phrase, I am the goddamn Dr. Doom in an answering machine message in the mid-80s. Rock over London, rock over Chicago. Doom out. <laughs> I often wondered what uh, what Dr. Doom may think of Frank Miller. Has, uh, has Frank ever done Dr. Doom? Has he ever drawn uh, or written Dr. Doom? I'm trying to think. 
Um, I think he showed maybe up. Maybe in a team-up or something. I have my Pro- probably complete a, Frank uh, Miller Spider-Man here. I'll see probably a cover or, or two, Yeah, I would guess. Uh, I'm just trying to think if he ever did any Doom stories. <laughs> I mean, he never worked on the Fantastic Four. Oh, even when he's not here, he's here, isn't he? Yes, yes. We, uh... <laughs> oh, here we go. Yep, he did in uh, Marvel team-up. Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 15. Uh, looks like he did. And uh, it's got Doom and uh, someone that looks like the Toad. I don't know why the Toad would be in there. But, um, and Frank did the pencils on it. So there you Ooh, go. Dormammu. The, Dor- Dormammu uh, is in it. Dormammu. Doctor Strange is in it. Uh, some big robot guys in it. I don't know. All sorts of craziness in there. So yeah. go back and. Uh, and that's. I, I was going to mention this book, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how many people have ever picked this up, but it's the complete Frank Miller Spider Man, and it's a lot of his really early stuff before he did Daredevil. Yeah. Uh, Marvel team up stuff, and and it's way more uh, superhero y stuff than than say Daredevil or, or whatever. But um, if you want to see like his you know sort of real early work at Marvel, there's a, there's some good stuff in here. So if you want to see him drawing Doom, Doom, who deserves his props. And, uh, apparently, and apparently wants royalties. Well, rock out, London. <laughs> rock out. Doom. All Doom's right. whack. Doom's crazy, man. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, moving forward, but actually moving back a little bit. Around the time that uh, The Dark Knight Returns was coming out in 1986, Miller was working on another project with another artist that would help redefine comics and that was uh, Bill Sienkiewicz two of them produced an eight issue limited series under the Epic imprint boy if you remember Epic oh yes called Electra Assassin not just fan favorite from the pages of his run on Daredevil anymore Electra was a strong enough character to carry her own series in the mid 80s she was the perfect character to showcase in the creative team's wild out of continuity tale of cyborgs and ninjas. <laughs> so, when in doubt, use cyborgs and ninjas time in comics, I guess? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I, all I know is this book was, blew me away when it came out. Sienkiewicz's art is just unbelievable. I mean, obviously people know him now, but at the time I had no idea. I didn't really had ever seen his stuff before. And when I saw that, man, it just... It was like nothing I had ever seen. It was so weird and out there and extreme. And uh, you want to talk about experimental? I mean, that guy does does more experimentation uh, in in an issue than most people do in careers. I was, I was thirteen when this came out, and when I bought it, I thought I was reading something that I shouldn't. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> has that feel to it. It almost has a porn feel to Absolutely. it because it's it, it it's neon, big lights. Yeah, yeah, know, absolutely. It's Sienkiewicz's art. It's it's just it has that. Very there's something narcotic erotic about it. Feel about yeah. it, and and uh, but that's a, a great story. And uh, talk about a guy that just uh, is amazing. I mean, the, the story by Frank is great, but the, the artwork is awesome by Sienkiewicz. And, and it's not something that you. I mean, you can flip through for an appreciation of the art just to get the feel of it. But it is a a dense read. There and and don't like going on. Uh, and it is like you know. I mean, this is a out of continuity. Out of it's like a. Elseworlds Electro story because it makes no friggin' sense. I mean, there's crap going on in here. Well, that's when Epic at at Marvel was really the line for them to do their experimental 
just wacky out there stuff. Epic. Ah, if there only was it so still much, existed. Oh, there was so much cool stuff coming oh, out yeah. of Epic. We could do a time. whole show on Epic. It was. We should do a whole show. On well, it. maybe we will. All right. Uh, moving on. May of uh, 1987, Miller drew the covers for the first 12 issues of First Comics, Lone Wolf and Cub. This helped bring Japanese manga to a wider Western audience. And uh, that's, you know, once again, 1987 for me, I was probably uh, 14. Probably. Uh, <laughs> 14, yeah, right around in there. And I, I had you know, no knowledge. No, junior no, in high school. Well, no knowledge. Smoking weed. Uh, Get laid. Reading oh, Electric yeah. Assassin. That's Whoa. right. <laughs> uh, I had no knowledge of manga, but I did have knowledge of Frank Miller. And so I saw these Frank Miller covers of Lone Wolf and Cub, mm-hmm. and while I'm not a huge manga fan or reader now, I still love Lone Wolf and Cub. Oh yeah, I mean it. W- it really did sort of help usher in manga, you know, at that time. And uh, I think uh, I'm trying to remember back. Um, maybe Akira was maybe one of the first things I had mm-hmm. ever seen, but Lone Wolf and Cub was right there with it, uh, as far as the whole Japanese comics. Um, and Frank was once again way ahead of the curve on that, uh, you know. And Lone Wolf and Cub is um, an amazing series of its own right. Stories. And uh, if you're a fan of like Kurosawa films, uh, you know those were very imp- influential on uh, on the Lone Wolf and Cub stories. And I'm just uh, thinking back to the to the mid mid and and late '80s and the the whole. Um, country's fascination with ninjas and ninjas. swords and throwing stars and and it's oh, like yeah, Frank man. Miller was right at the middle of that as a oh, comic yeah. fan and you know it's growing up in in Bumblebee uh, southern illinois you know well, you had to the be influx, a cool kid you had to have a throwing star you had the you know? influx of of you know ninja films and uh, you know following on the footsteps of of you know like Bruce Lee who really i think was the first you know, introduction of, of uh, you know, kung fu movies and that kind of stuff. He was really, you know, the big star at that time. But then after he died and, and everything, and, and you, you saw Jackie Chan and more stuff. And then you had, like, you know, I remember Kung Fu Theater and... You know, at just that time, you know, martial arts and, and ninjas... It and, exploded. And, you know, it was yeah. huge in, in, in every aspect of pop, pop, pop culture. Sure. Well, that's why, you know, later Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would become so popular, and that is, you know, so derivative of all of all of Miller's work. Oh, yeah. I mean, the... the I mean, it's not even... They don't even hide it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's not, like, influenced by... It's, you know, it's straight it, it, it say, you I know, mean, thank you, Frank, at the yeah, end Yeah, and I think, issue. you know, uh, you know, those guys... Oh, they... Uh, yeah, and, and I don't think they ever thought it was going to be what it turned into when they started it. I mean, it was just like this indie little cool indie comic that they did, and it exploded along with the rest of the country. You know, uh, it, it, if anything was a perfect storm, exactly. that was a perfect storm. But, oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just another area where, where Frank was ahead of the curve and influential in, in so many different places. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the uh, the covers that he did for I keep long, calling him Frank like I know him. I know. It's, I kind of well, feel like I do. Yeah, though. he's been with me my entire, you know, <laughs> comic reading life. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's... Uh, yeah. You know, Frank is. Yeah, well, yeah. You think about it that way. I mean, since I started reading comics, he was like one of the first creators that I've ever followed Mm -hmm. and continued to, and and yeah, always, always has. 
It's uh, around the time that uh, that this is all happening, uh, Miller, along with uh, Marv Wolfman, Alan Moore, Howard Chaykin, and others, had uh, been in a, dis- in a dispute with DC Comics over a proposed rating system for comics. Disagreeing with uh, what he saw as censorship, Miller refused to do any further work at DC and uh, would take all of his uh, further works to Dark Horse. From now on, uh, Miller would be a major supporter of creator rights, and uh, we have some uh, uh, interesting comments from fellow creator John Byrne on editorial control and uh, moving on to creator-owned works. Yeah, that was uh, that was probably the first place that Frank and I had a had a kind of a. A, a disagreement in, in, in basic philosophical stuff because he did talk about you know DC trying to to tie down stronger editorial controls at one point he did get up in arms about that calling it censorship and and my point was well they own the characters if they want to tell us what to do with it that's pretty much their right that's not censorship that's that's what editorial control is all about and if you want to not have to worry about that, go cre- create your own characters, which I ultimately did with, with Next Men and some other stuff, and which, which he, of course, did with, with Sin City. So we both found our ways back to the same place again, you know, with, uh, with the creator-owned stuff. Um, we got there by, by different roads. Yeah, well, the driving... The driving force for me, I can't, I can't actually speak, you know, for Frank's particular motivations, but I'm sure they were very similar to this. I, I realized eventually that there were just too many stories that I couldn't do working for Marvel or DC, and it wasn't about censorship. It was about what's already been done. In, in, for example, uh, to take something fairly cliche, in the Marvel universe, you can't do the first alien contact story. You can't do the first time travel story. Uh, you can't do stories set in the future because all of those things are tied down. We know what the first alien contact was. We know what the first time travel story was. We know what the future looks like. So I, I came to a point of realizing that if I wanted to do the kinds of stories I was itching to do, if I wanted to kind of explore those those first time things and those those areas that uh, had been so heavily explored already in these shared universes, I was going to have to go to something that wasn't a shared universe. And I'm sure that Frank had very much the same idea. There was no way that Sin City could have been a city in the DC universe or a city in the Marvel universe. They just weren't structured that way. And I'm, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Frank never even thought of putting Sin City in either of those universes. He wouldn't want, you know, Captain America turning up in Sin City. But that was kind of where we were both coming from, as I say, coming down different paths to get to the same point, where you just say, if I'm, if I'm going to do the kind of stuff that I'm really itching to do right now, I have to do it with total control. I can't do it filtered through an editor or filtered through a publisher who's going to be worried about protecting his own interests, it has to be you know, me out there on, on the firing line. You know, I'm, that's probably literally how Frank would have thought about it. He'd want to put himself on the firing line. 
So there you go. Uh, some some insight into the climate of comics at the time, with uh, not not just creator rights, but uh, editorial control and creative uh, license to do what these guys wanted to do. I, th- I, I think what was starting to happen is that is that Frank Miller and other creators were getting to a point that um, that the art form was ready to expand and um, the, the iconic characters that they had been able to use weren't going to expand with them. Well, and I also think it was a matter, I mean, for someone like Frank, where, you know, he had done this work that created um, so much more popularity for these characters and yet wasn't necessarily seeing anything out of it, you know, as, as opposed mm-hmm. to... Uh, you know what I mean? It's like okay, he does Dark Knight Return, and I don't know what his deal was with that, or what you know, how much whatever he got paid, or whatever the you know. I'm just a, sort of assuming that you know at that time, creator rights were uh, limited, and and for him to sort of look at it like, well, you know, there's going to be creators, you know, after me that are going to do stuff like this too, and if they don't. You know, if we don't do something about this now, they're not going to get anything out of it. You know, they're not, and and it also led to you know you talk about the censorship and, and editorial control, and it led to Frank's, um, you know, campaign for really the rest of his career now. Uh, someone who's you know fought uh, fought against censorship for for the rest of his career. I mean, that's you know he's really been um, in the forefront of that uh, for a long time now. And, oh, and yeah, it, he he's the kind of guy that. I imagine doesn't want to be boxed in. You know, that's the last thing that you ever want to do to um, a person and a talent like Frank Miller is try and put him in a box because the first thing he's going to do is try and get out of that Can't box. Can't put a rainbow in a jar, my friend. <laughs> well, the interesting I mean, there was about a four or five year period now between uh, his last work for for um, for Marvel or DC, which was uh, you know the Electro Assassin mm-hmm. and 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 the other uh, and. At, in that time period, I think he was um, making his first foray into Hollywood. He had worked on uh, on RoboCop, the script, and some other stuff that didn't, you know, end up being as as fantastic as comics work. And he hadn't really done anything in a while in in the comics industry. And um, reading uh, in some interviews and stuff, he, he he's talked about when he came back and he decided he was going to, you know, he wanted to do something in comics again, it's, you know, it's, it's, but he was going to do exactly what he wanted to do, and he sat down and, and did Sin City, mm-hmm. and it was, there was no editorial constraint, it was exactly how he wanted it to be, he, you know, from start to finish, and did everything in it, and, and there was nobody telling him what he could or couldn't do, um, and, you know, there were no guarantees. I mean, there, nobody knew, you know, he didn't know what it was going to be like. He just had belief in his own talent and ability, and, and he had these stories he wanted to tell, and and lo and behold, here's the next uh, step for Frank Miller. He creates this, you know, whole revitalization of noir in comics. And once again, we see, you know, his influence uh, today still with guys, you know, doing noir like Brubaker and, and line of guys, so... And here we have uh, Andy Parks talking about uh, Sin City and how Sin City is a true noir comic. When Sin City came out, I was already a huge fan of his, but that project really blew me away and, and was really inspiring to me because he he had the position in the industry and he had the balls to say, screw it. I don't need to make a fat paycheck right now doing 
another Batman, another Daredevil. I'm going to go do something all on my own terms. I'm going to do it just the way I want to. And I'm going to just going to lay it out there and have faith that people are going to find it. And uh, fortunately, when he does it, it's so brilliant that it. Uh, I, I think it not. Ju- it doesn't just draw in people who are already into that kind of material. It's strong enough that it can draw people in who've never been into noir, never knew they were into noir before. Because um, his work is just that powerful, I think. If you're talking about a noir film, of course it has that look. It's it's black and white. It's very stark. It's uh, the lighting in it is very direct, bold images and so on. Um, rainy streets, cool cars, all those noir hallmarks that you think of visually. As far as themes and story goes, it's got the classic noir protagonist in every story, some guy who's completely flawed and operates outside of normal life or what we would consider normal outside of the system, and yet somebody that you're drawn to and kind of root for despite the fact that they have all these flaws and maybe a violent, despicable person, you still find yourself kind of pulling for the guy. In the first one, I love the the character of, uh, of Marv who's just too... A guy who knows he's not very bright and knows his limitations really well and still kind of, you know, strives as best he can, even though he knows he, what his limitations are. I think that's really cool. He also, Frank is not obligated as guys like Jim Thompson were not uh, to give you a tidy, happy ending. He's not, he's not afraid to just end this with, a, you know, some kind of apocalyptic end to our character that we've come to know and love. And that's a, that's another noir uh, hallmark. You can't find much cooler than those guys electrocuting Marvin, him looking up and saying, I'm looking at it right now. He says, is that the best you can do, you pansies? Sin City is, I, I think if you if you take Frank Miller and boil down his, his creative vision, it, it, it turns into Sin City. I mean, that is, is probably the, the purest Frank Miller work that we've seen. Yeah, it's all him. There's yeah. nothing. There's no, you know, there's no constraints. There's no limitations. There's no, it's it's exactly everything that he wanted to do. And I, think, I about, think it's the perfect um, mix of his love of film and his love of comics. And he's talked about how, fi- he, you know, how film does certain things great, but there's things you can do in comics that you can't do in film, specifically, you know, moments in time and, and holding and pauses and different things like that and culminations of different characters talking at the same time and different, you know. So uh, you you see a lot of that in Sin City. And, and also at this time, I mean, it's like this is sort of we see another, ex- you know, artistically uh, more experimentation from him. We see a different art style uh, in Sin City, especially as those series went on. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more of, of sort of the exaggeration and cartoonish stuff, even though these stories are incredibly dark and, uh, you know, uh, serious, um, there's also humor in them, to, you know, twisted humor, but humor nonetheless. Um, but his style, his art style, you know, where he's, you know, completely un... Uh, I don't want to say unhinged, but you know, untethered by anything. Uh, you see it evolve into something that's much more, cl- you know, a lot closer to what we see today. Uh, once again, um, and, and you can look at Ronin, which was 
sort of the precursor to this. You know, you could see a lot of the stuff in Ronin you can see in Sin City, sure, but sure. it's now it's, it's polished more, and there's more. You know, oh, the, you know, artistically, his use of negative space and yeah. positive space, the the white silhouette, which single is, a, color. is a trademark of Sin City mm-hmm. now. It's yeah, the the, the single Splash spot color, color spot color stuff, and and uh, you know, much more. Um, much more brave in 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 just experimenting with stuff. I mean, the rain scenes and using white ink uh, on top of black stuff. And and I read read in this book again. I can't recommend this book enough for anyone that's a either an Eisner or a Miller fan. But um, with Sin City, interesting thing, he uh, was inking it all, and he would do it in like an almost like an assembly line process. He would go through pencil the entire book. Go back, lay in all the flat blacks, then go back and ink in all the detail, start to finish. Uh, I mean, you know, most most people, you know, even if they're inking their own stuff, it's like I'll pencil this page and then I'll, ink, you know, maybe I'll pencil five pages and then go back and ink those five pages, then I'll move on to the next five. He would pencil the entire th- book and go back. And what he, why he was doing it was sort of like he wanted to keep um, fresh. On all of it, so like he could, he you know, he could keep the whole story in mind when he was working at it. He could pencil the whole thing in one, sort of one voice, then go back and ink it all in one voice, and keep fresh on each page, on each section of it, instead of like getting tired of drawing this section and moving on to another one and that kind of thing. But it, like I, I thought that was really interesting that, that that he did it in that in that way. And you can kind of, when you think about it, when you're reading the books, you can kind of see that process take take hold of the story, and it is such a a clear, you know, distinctive voice throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's very, very much the same. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the things I loved about uh, Sin City was its use of non-linear storylines. Characters that have been killed or, you know, gone away for whatever reason can come back mm-hmm. uh, through his weird timeline that you never, you know, that's the thing about Sin City is that it, it's always kind of just left of center from, you know, from reality. It, it's it, Well, sure, it's a fantasy world. I mean, it's, it's not Total it's not world. reality. It's not uh, supposed to be. It's Out it's like there. it's hyper Los Angeles. Yes, you know it's hyper noir. Um, it's not true. You know, like true noir. You know what I mean? As it's far derivative as, of yeah, and but it's taken. You know, blown up and 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 twisted and and well, you know, and Andy said it. It, t- it takes all of the core elements of noir, right. And it does use them. But then it, it and then expands. It's on. Frank Millard. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah, and then it gets Millard. <laughs> yeah, but Sin City is, I, I, is another, uh, and, you know, obviously with the film and everything coming out, and, and uh, it, it's it's another one of of his just leaps. It's like every time he comes out with something, it's this. It's not small. You know what I mean? I mean, he's done small books, but it's like he's had so many of these just gigantic leaps in his career. Of stuff that's just unbelievable, and and uh, uh, I know that there are a lot, some people that think that you know, um, with Sin City, that that's when his art started to decline. Oh God, no! And, and I hate <laughs> I hate hearing well with the later stories with like a Yellow Bastard and and uh, Family Values and stuff like that. But it's not like he forgot how to draw. It's yeah, and that's the thing that drives me nuts when people when I hear that it's like oh he's lost it he's you know whatever I'm like. There's some people that say, oh, he's, he's not evolving, it's not changing, that's, you know, but I, I completely disagree that's with that. That's all he's ever done in his career. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done change. it again and again and again. And, and I personally think I, I can see what, you know, 
the changes and why he's doing it and what and and if you listen to his interviews and you hear the man speak about you know what he's doing it makes complete sense to me but that's me I'm a, I, I mean know. I don't want to sound like a total Frank Miller apologist that's not why we're doing this episode that's not what I mean we love his work we're huge fans but you know are there things that he's done in his career that I like more than other things absolutely sure. I think for for both of us like Dark Knight is, is probably the the pinnacle for, for us as far as everything working to our taste but you look at things that he's done in since you look at things that he's done in you know dk2 or mm-hmm. in, what, whatever point in his career he was trying to do something different and sometimes it, it works to a masterful effect sometimes it is just a a a sidestep in in his artistic process, but I'm never going to fault anyone for trying to break out. And of, I'm always going to give a guy like that the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah you think if anyone's <laughs> earned it, it's it's Frank Miller. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see a decline in his art. At all. I I certainly see a change in his art. I mean, there's no questioning that. But I don't see it as a decline. I know a lot of people do, but but a decline to me would you know be, I mean, it's it's so sort of subjective because it depends on what you consider quality artwork or whatever but to me it's like if you look at dk2 and and that's probably the quintessential piece that people go oh well that's you know he's completely lost that is the polarizing piece and it's like if he was you know and i've heard people say, oh well he just mailed that in or he just you know he's lost you know whatever he's gone crazy he just (laughs) but if you if you look at that book and you look at how much time and thought is put into the sequential s- stuff that is done in that book the you know i'm not talking about the line work like the the characterization or how this character body is developed or it's rendered the, you know, yeah the, the i'm not talking about i'm talking about i'm talking about the, se- the sequential art the how he's telling the story with the pages and with the panels there's so much thought put into it more thought put into that book which i know people hate than most comics that come out today. So it's like, I, I, I find it hard to believe that he just mailed that in or his, you know, his skills are declining when it's obvious that you know, this guy is, if you look at those pages and you, you study sequential art, and you, I mean, there's some masterful stuff in there. I think there's still a lot of soul to the work. Oh, yeah, and, and whether, you, whether you love the story or hate the story, that's not what I'm talking about. If you're going to judge it on an artistic merit, just on you know on that, look at that part of it too. Not whether or not you liked it because it was a different style. I, I think, and, and once again, not to be an apologist, I've liked DK too. I, I think that that book. It was a victim of the success of DK of Dark Knight Returns. Absolutely, and I think it's one of those that you know, it became fashionable to to Bash jump, it to and jump on it. it. And, and well, we, on. we love nothing more in this country than to build someone up and then tear them down. Well, and, sure. and, and and like I said, I, I'm not trying to say that that's a great work or a quintessential piece of. It's not Frank his Miller. best. I don't no, think it's, it's his not best his work. best work. It's not certainly not not even close. Um, but I think the piling but, on. Of yeah, it I think the, the people that just like absolutely rail on it. I don't see it. I honestly just don't see. Uh, it's different. It, it's different than yeah. anything else that that he's done. Um, and maybe it was just the time it was done. You know, it's like people weren't ready to accept anything that different. Well, I, I think there was a, a lot going on with the world with uh, the after effects of of nine eleven. Now, how much of that influenced the book? I don't know because you know you, you have to kind of look at the weird time. Like how much of it was done before nine eleven? How much of it was done after? It just I know that it was coming out 
yeah around that time I, I don't know i don't honestly know you know how much of it he had done beforehand i mean if you look at the third issue of that of that book i mean it seems that obviously um uh as a new yorker he was affected by 911 i'd imagine and 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 it it worked its way into that and it may have been some of the problems with the story is that i think i think maybe he tried to change things there and that you know that third issue uh maybe not everything made complete sense because he was trying to force some stuff in there that wasn't initially intended but after uh after 911 it was you know maybe he felt how he, could it not yeah exactly how does it not change somebody i mean it, you know and um uh actually had a chance to talk with uh, writer Jerry Duggan he uh apart from being a a comic book writer interviewed Frank Miller and wrote the icons biography on g4 so uh jerry had spent some time with frank and here he is talking about uh, 9-11 and uh, and maybe some of the effects on miller as a creator well and his reaction to 9-11 was you know he was an artist living in new york when that happened so the he watched those planes fly into the buildings and the, the buildings fall as a new yorker yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever see, you know, Holy Terror Batman, but that was obviously another extension of that. It was an anger that he felt that he channeled that you know, I hope we see it someday. I don't know. If, I don't know if we will. Yeah, I mean, how does it, you know, I mean, I'm not from New York, but I can only imagine what people there, little, I mean, you know, just as a, an American, it affected me, let alone if I, I lived in New York and, you know, spent as much time as he did in there and, and as an artist who's often worked in the realm of politics and, and war and different aspects of that and uh, you know yeah you, you would expect it I, like I said I don't know how much effect it had yeah. or how much it didn't or, or what it changed in the story or what it didn't so well I want to move on to um, one of the the last major works of, of Frank Miller so and, far uh, so yes and it's definitely a continuing story in May of 1998, Miller would create another series destined for the big screen, presented in double-page spreads with a built-in widescreen feel. 300 was Miller's vision of 300 Spartan soldiers who defied government authority to hold back the entire Persian army. A story of honor, valor, and determination in the face of insurmountable odds, 300 further cemented Miller as a master of the comic medium and continued a series of now highly successful movie adaptions. Three Hundred is one of my favorite movies, not just comic book movies. Favorite movies all time. Movies. Wow! I love the epic vision of it. I love the effects. I love the characters, the feel. It, it, the comic book aside, it is an amazing vision on screen. I loved 300. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I, I think it was probably the only um, comic book movie that I've ever watched that was, I don't want to say better. Maybe more fully realized on the big screen. Than yeah, the I mean, because it was like, there were things that happened in the film that finally, like, all of a sudden I went back to the, the book and ah. went, oh, that makes so much more sense now to me seeing it on screen and seeing it in, in four dimensions as opposed to, you know, uh, flat on a page. Um, and Add, I don't think adding, that's... Adding another small storyline to it 
hold the rest of the the, the rest of the stuff the together a little bit. I thought that was yeah. yeah it was the one time where like stuff was changed in a, a, a positive know. way. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I don't think it's and I don't mean that in a, a way to like um, you know disparage. 300 the the graphic novel no, or the, the it, it's it's a great series and i just think it's because it was it's it was like such a great um story it was like too much for that for the medium almost i mean it need, needed to be made into a film it needed to be but once again it's just him pushing the boundaries and you know not accepting what's come before as uh the only thing that can happen mm-hmm. uh Definitely need to mention Lynn Varley's colors in the series. Absolutely, it's, uh, the the coloring it, it added a dimension that you know it, it, it's a different book with any other. Yeah, colors. there's no question. Um, and he's talked about in in this he ta- he's talked about how with coloring and him, I mean, he pretty much is hands off when it comes to coloring of his work, um, especially with Lynn Varney. That he just is like it's 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 a whole nother creative process that he lets uh, happen outside of. He kind of knows his limitations there. I guess. Well, maybe yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I I think he likes black and white. I think he likes working in black and mm-hmm. white. Um, uh, and when it comes to color, I think he just thinks that other people are better suited to do it than he is. And with Lynn Varney, uh, you know, most of the time that's that's truly the case. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think next up for Frank Miller in uh, uh, the immediate future is his plan to direct The Spirit, which uh, you've been talking uh, about uh, this Will Eisner, Frank Miller book. Yes. And what, what's the name of the book again? It's just called Eisner Miller. It's it's actually from Dark Horse. They published it. Basically one long conversation over a weekend between Frank Miller and Will Eisner, uh, who were very good friends. And um, this was uh, the last, um, as far as I know, the last published interview of Will Eisner before he, he passed away. Um, and I think they were very um, different people, but very similar. Uh, obviously age, you know, they were very different in age, but uh, kindred spirits and... Um, they love to argue about stuff, and this is sort of them talking about all sorts of aspects of uh, of the comic book industry, you know, from uh, 1942 up until today. And um, I got a lot of insight, a lot of uh, sort of uh, knowledge, I think, about these two guys that I didn't know before because it was um, was strictly, a, you know, like a conversation. It was like uh, sort of eavesdropping on these two old friends talking uh, and um, I got a lot of perspective about these two creators um, that I hadn't had before so I, I really recommend it. I think it's, if you're a fan of these guys if, you, if you're into you know interviews and that kind of thing about creators I, I think it's an excellent work and, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed it well Eisner certainly has a legacy that goes without uh, without saying it. I think that uh, Frank Miller is definitely going to have a legacy and, and here is uh, Jerry Duggan uh, talking about just that well I think Frank's legacy is, is is going to be really unique I mean he obviously has one side of that coin is all the comic book work and sort of the several times that he turned the medium on its head. Then the other side will be the side that's really still being written, and that's the the the, the Hollywood and film work. And, you know, with Sin City, 
city and and then later with what um, Zack Snyder and Larry Fong and everyone did to bring 300 to life because that really as much as you know in a lot of ways I thought the film is just a great adaptation uh, that and V for Vendetta and I think Frank's legacy uh, his success I would say at the box office really makes it easier for uh, films to be made that are truer to the comic book. It's a security blanket for the people that are making the movies that are giving, that are signing the checks, really, to say, I feel better about signing away X amount of dollars because it was a successful comic book and everyone wants to have the next sort of Frank Miller success. You know, Sin City was not just an enjoyable film, but it was profitable. 300 is very much the same. Um, and so, you know, Frank, uh, really, I, I didn't know what the Icons program was going to be about, really, until I sat down with Frank, and during the interview, he, Frank said, comic books and movies are getting married. And, you know, they really are. Um, you know, films have always used storyboards uh, in pre-production in one way or the other to sort of communicate what they were going to do. And if you have a comic book, that you're going to turn into a movie, a lot of that work is already done. A lot of the heavy lifting, anyway. I think uh, one of the things that uh, Frank Miller, in addition to his love of comics, is his uh, uh, kindredship with other comic creators and, and, and their love of the medium. He's a... Uh He's probably more, uh, I mean, uh, more aware of what's going on in, like, small press and stuff than people would ever imagine. He's very, um, in his own words, very excited about what he sees at, like, SPX and, and stuff like that because of the new generation of comic creators that are coming out. So I know he's uh, very much involved with, with the world of, of comics still. Sure, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to hear about... Uh about creators meeting idols, and uh, and and here is like when uh, Scotty Young met me. Yeah, like when idol. Scotty met you. Here is uh, here is Andy Parks recounting of uh, meeting Frank Miller. He was standing at a party in San Diego, and Phil and I were kind of getting ready to leave, and I said, "Screw that! I'm going to go meet Frank Miller." And uh, Shrek was standing nearby, and Bob said, "I'll go introduce you." And God bless him. I, I just, I must have babbled incoherent. I mean, I think I managed to say your work means a lot to me and blah, blah, blah. And God bless him. He said he liked uh, Green Arrow. He said, you guys fucking get it, man, because you're cartoonists. And I don't think my feet hit the ground the rest of the night. Phil and I skipped home to our hotel like little girls. It, it was amazing. And I still haven't gotten over that moment. There are a lot of guys in this business that I revere that much, but I never met most of them. Kurtzman, Kirby, guys like that, and I never got to meet him. So Frank is like the story of the guy I worshipped and I got to meet, and he was cool to me. You just, you can't beat that. Uh, I hope someday to meet him. 
<laughs> I missed him last year. Uh, yeah, he won't. You know, no when, fucking when idea I was who I am. With, but uh, with Andy and uh, and he had actually mentioned this. Uh, gosh, uh, many many episodes ago, whenever we talked with uh, with Andy, uh, that he has. He has, I think, several bookshelves of, of comics and, and, and collected editions and reference material. But there's one small bookshelf that he keeps by his, uh, his drafting table in his studio, and it's filled with Frank Miller work. So I know that, uh, that he has been a huge influence on Andy and Andy's comics career. I think he's been, you know, an enormous influence on just, you know, a ton of people. I mean, I think you see it everywhere. And, uh, for him to, uh, you know, I, I, what Andy, you know, to hear Andy talk about, you know, a guy like that is, is cool because it's like, you know, and I know what we're like when we meet guys like Andy and Phil or, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we're, you know, we turn into babbling, you know, let alone someone like, uh, like Frank, uh, Miller that I probably wouldn't, you know, know what to say. Um, to a guy like that, but I would love to meet him someday. I missed him last year at Wizard World Chicago by like 45 minutes, but uh, maybe maybe sometime. Maybe I'll... one of these days. Huh? Yep, maybe. Maybe maybe we can get him on the show somehow, some way. If anybody out there knows Frank Miller and likes us, uh, tell him to come on our show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's two things. If you if you know Frank and you like us, I, that's not going to be a lot of people, but maybe somebody out there. <laughs> well, I think... Uh, I think a really, uh, I think a really good way to to wrap this up. It's, uh, it, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of fun riding along with John Byrne, he, the, kind of walking da- through Frank's career, and this is your life, according to John Byrne. I know, and, <laughs> uh, and he was so gracious to. Uh, yeah, th- thank so you to helpful. thank you to all the guys, Jerry and and Andy and and especially John uh, for for you know spending time uh, with us and giving their insight on Frank. and uh, It's great to hear uh, you know, a guy like John Byrne talk about Frank. And uh, the, re- the, the respect yeah. that, uh, and, and just mutual a- admiration. I think it's very apt for, uh, for us to leave the discussion with, uh, with another uh, clip from John Byrne talking about uh, Frank Miller and, and where we're going to go now. Frank has such a great love of comics. Um, just the, just the, the the medium. When, when you talk to him, that that shines through. That that you know he he he, he may have he may have outgrown or, or or passed beyond superheroes, but he he loves comics. And I I I the Frank Miller. I think I know. I don't think. Could ever completely walk away from it any more than I could. Uh, I mean, I'm still happily doing superheroes, but uh, I think I think Frank will always have at least one toe in that. And every once in a while, he'll say, "Oh, I'm going to do a, a 900-page you know, life of Mozart just to you know, blow everybody's minds," and he will. You know. And there you go. That is our creator spotlight on. Frank Miller. So, hope you enjoyed that. I, I think that will just be the first of many 
creator spotlights that we do. I know I had a lot of fun putting that together, and uh, and I know you've been looking forward to talking about Frank all yeah. I, all I week mean, long. if there's one guy that I uh, I probably admire in the industry more than any, it's Frank Miller. I'm I'm uh, he's my favorite creator, favorite writer, favorite artist. Uh, I think a guy who's you know broke more barriers and and has has just done a, a just an amazing amount of work. As as much as I love Alan Moore stuff, he's no artist. Um, and Frank's done it both, and not to you know, I mean, and done both, really and done well. done both extremely well, and and you know, and just done stuff that is um, redefining of the industry over and over and over again. Uh, uh, you, you look, uh, you know, comics. I I'm a fan of of jazz, baseball, and comics, and all three of those things are are uniquely American in their I like popsicles in, in their <laughs> in their origins and I think that uh, that Frank Miller is one of the um, uh, one of the great baseball is um, not uniquely American yes it is it is not yes it is <laughs> crazy give me that Come to all our listeners in the UK don't give me that rounder strap <laughs> oh uh, no no it didn't start it didn't have any any other I think he's one of the great American creators in in a in a Purely American art form? A, Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, in in, in a an art form. He's a true American, a true patriot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what no, I'm trying to say there? No, I think I understand what you mean. He, he uh, um, you know, comics are a true American art form. They, they right. Were, they were made here. They were pioneered here. And I think he's one of the well. I think he. Def- the he I think he personifies. Um, and we could get into this some other time, but. I think I, what what I take from that is like he personifies the sort of American uh, that American spirit in um, in an American art form. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, as much as we love the British writers and the British, and even a lot of uh, uh, other American, I mean, it's that rebel that that um, maverick that Frank Miller is that makes him uh, very much uh, American. There, there was there was a great. Um, British invasion in comics, and we saw some of the greatest comics that have ever been produced that were, were done by these by these very talented writers and artists that, that came mm-hmm. from that came from Great Britain. And and Frank Miller was like that that one flagpole uh, in, in that era. Right. He that, it's like okay, these guys have just kicked our asses everywhere, mm-hmm. but we still got Frank. Yeah. You know what I mean? We we got him at least. You know, it's like you get you might have Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and all these guys, but it, we still got Frank. You know, and uh, yeah, I can I can see what you mean by that. It's like the the as an American and uh, and y- you do take some I guess additional pride in the fact that you know he's he's one of us. Yeah. But uh, it's just an amazing creative uh, force in comics that um, uh, you know, and and while he's moving on to film, I think. Uh, I think we'll see some amazing stuff there too, and, and I don't think he's done in comics. I don't think he'll ever be done in comics. Not not all the way. All right, um, well everyone. But I am. I'm <laughs> done with comics. <laughs> oh, we're done with comics for the night. Oh, so uh, I tell you what. Let's uh, let's remind folks uh, a few different ways that they can interact with the show. One of my favorites is by leaving us an iTunes music Tell review. us how wonderful we are. You can. Because we're very insecure. <laughs> you could uh, do that at the iTunes music store. And I'd like to uh, give special thanks to Clark147, Professor Mullins, and it's SCAD. Thank you, Jeremy. He's uh, everywhere. Bottle City and Josh Ship. Not Shippy. 
<laughs> Make sure to check out all the great things that AroundComics.com has to offer. It's your source for the best in comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We post the next week's topic on Tuesdays at our forum at AroundComics.com. And you can... Uh, and next week is uh, David Peterson of Mouse Guard fame. Absolutely. Uh, we are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can find more great podcasts at ComicsPodcasts.com. And thank you again to InStock Trades for sponsoring this episode. InStockTrades.com is your source for all things Frank Miller. Check out Frank Miller's landmark run on Daredevil in the Daredevil Omnibus, which I highly recommend. They also carry Batman The Dark Knight Returns, The Dark Knight Strikes Again, Ronin Sin City, and many others. InStockTrades.com is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more, all at great discounted prices. And remember that all orders over $50 ship for free. A Dark Knight Absolute Edition is awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I've bought that, like you said, like five different times. And I bought the Daredevil. I own all the Daredevil, Frank Miller Daredevil issues, but I bought the omnibus anyway. <laughs> You're, um, sick. You're sick. I am. I I know. Don't forget uh, about our Be a Hero contest. Make a donation at www.heroinitiative.org and help veteran creators in need. Then send us an email at hero at aroundcomics.com letting us know that you did it. Everyone that makes a donation is entered into a drawing that will take place at the end of June. The contest is being sponsored by InStockTrades.com. They're including $100 in gift certificates, good for anything that they carry. In addition to a $50 gift certificate, the first place winner will receive a prize pack, including a one-of-a-kind hardcover edition of Jeffrey Brown's I'm Going to Be Small, an autographed Scotty Young sketchbook, and a Mike Norton Fallen Sun edition Captain America sketch all that and more. Second prize is a uh, swift kick in the oh. <laughs> the second prize is a fifty dollar gift certificate to InStockTrades.com. So donate at HeroInitiative.org, then email us at hero at aroundcomics.com. All entries need to be in by June thirtieth. And uh, special thanks to everyone who's donated so far, including our latest donators. I like it's like a supervillain. I'm the donator. <laughs> Uh, Zach Enhert, Enhert, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Zach, Zach, it's Zach Enhert, Zach Enhert, and Josh Ship. thank you both. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone that was a part of this episode. Doom! <laughs> John Doom. Byrne! <laughs> Who would win in a fight, John Byrne or Doom? Uh, John Byrne would disintegrate Doom with his eyes. Cool. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Jerry Duggan, thank you so much. Uh, Andy Parks, always, My man. always a pleasure. My brother to to Mr. from Parks. another mother. <laughs> uh, thanks to Mark, as always, for hosting us here at uh, Dark Tower. Uh, Tom will be back uh, again on next Monday's episode. Scotty will be back from uh, Heroes. Uh, from Heroes Con. It depends. I don't know if Tom will be back. It depends on if he's back from special assignment or not. Special assignment. <laughs> He's assassinating someone. That's his special assignment. <laughs> so, uh, Sal and I will be back on uh, on next I'm not, I Monday. Won't, I, won't, I won't be here. Are you taking the week yeah, off? Yeah, I'm taking it. Your turn now? Yeah. <laughs> you guys all have taken time off. You, you, Tom, from Scotty. I'm here for at least I'm always time. here. I know. You guys suck. <laughs> I'm gone. But we'll be back on, now. Uh, on Monday to I'm talk not coming about back. all of the news and uh, and new releases. In the meantime, in between time, we'll be everywhere in and around, around comics. comics. 
I miss Tom's snappy little quotes here now. Um, yeah, I got nothing. like to suggest a topic, send us your comments, or are interested in becoming a panel member, email us at info at aroundcomics.com or visit the contact us section of our website. Music for the show provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network, music.podshow.com. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and do not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Thank you for listening today, and remember to join us next time, and the panel will change, but our mission will stay the same bringing you the very best news, reviews, and opinions in and around comics. Around Comics is a Pipe Dream production. Copyright 2007. All rights reserved. Oh, let me, baby, love you one more time.